Welcome, everybody, to the latest Truth and Consequences Zoom chat. And I am really excited today to be joined by Sam Sharap from the RAND Corporation, political scientist, RAND, senior, I'm sorry, senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and Russia expert. And uh, I know it's a busy time for you, so I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to uh, talk about what's happening in Ukraine. So welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. So let's talk. Here, things are not going well, it seems, for Vladimir Putin in, in Ukraine. And, and I guess the question I have is, we talked a little bit before we got on the, on the call here, how surprised are you that things are going so poorly? And how surprised do you think Putin is that things are going so poorly? So um, the first thing that is what, that I did not expect was the initial plan, which was totally which was terrible yes from a military perspective um basically based on extremely optimistic assumptions uh slash you know typical russian elite chauvinism about the ukrainian state's capacity to survive so basically i think that all they had to do was give it a little push and it would collapse like a house of cards um otherwise there's just no way to explain the initial uh, military actions, such as sending elite paratrooper units on suicide missions deep inside, you know, enemy territory without any logistical tail or air support. Um, the fact that the Ukrainian Air Force still exists is shocking to me. I mean, that, that they didn't start the war with a uh, suppression of enemy air defense and um, operation that would have, you know, my that's Anyway, so this is not how they train to fight. It's not what the their uh, you know doctrinal writings say they should be doing. So clearly, there was some political decisions made early on that you don't you know we don't have to do this the way the general staff planners probably said they should, but uh you know it was for political considerations i think you know the idea was that all they had to do was do some shock and awe and that would be it and so was, now I think, a lot of shock though where was the shock i mean i really I, that's well, i did fire a lot of uh, cruise missiles at um at various military targets throughout the entire country including so um there was some of that long-range strike um you know thing that that went on in the beginning i mean you have to keep in mind that um u.s shock and awe relied not only on our ability to deliver unit you know precision guided munitions from long ranges but also the quantity that we have that's true which dwarfs russia's conventional magazine they've had a lot of trouble um building large quantities of um conventional precision long-range strike capabilities um so, but the, the, the tactics have shifted in recent days uh, and, you know, they're now doing in part what I expected them to doing still the, the lack of complete suppression of the Ukrainian Air Force and air defenses is a, is a puzzle. The lack of the Russian Air Force involvement for the most part is a puzzle. Um, but, you know, we now see a uh, move to encircle the Ukrainian forces on the line of contact in the east um, which is what I would have expected, uh, because, you know, a lot of Ukrainian capabilities are, are concentrated there and we're seeing, you know, a move to encircle the capital too. So, um, you know, I think it, 
it was the initial plan was terrible um but this is a military that is uh you know with time it, oh i think we may have lost sam there for a second uh, oh are you still there sam Still think you know that they they're likely to prevail in the end, so to speak. It's just going to be a whole lot bloodier and take a whole lot longer than they originally planned. Okay, so let me ask you about the political implications here, because you talked about that the political reasons for perhaps not going as aggressively. Do you think that is a a fear of a domestic political backlash in Russia, or is it a more of a a sense that, uh, you know, if you're going to to not basically act too aggressively in order to piss off the Ukrainians too much because you may have to set up a puppet regime and you may have to occupy the country. In other words, maybe to to do sort of a touchy-feely invasion occupation. Was that was that the rationale, do you think? Um, I think that was part of it. And I think it was also based on an assumption that it would work. In other words, that like the Ukrainian elites would flee, that the government would collapse, that the military wouldn't resist, that this would be kind of like a somewhat more difficult version of Crimea. Okay. Yeah. Where, yeah. Do you, I mean, you know, do you think Putin believed his own, forgive my, my language, bullshit about the Ukrainians, that they're all a bunch of drug addicts and, and Nazis? Do you think he believed that? So let's, not the drug addicts and Nazis part, I, I find that hard to believe, but the, uh, you just have to keep in mind that they really don't think that Ukraine is capable of doing anything. Um, uh, so it's just a very sort of chauvinistic um, uh, view of their neighbors. And um, that has been persistent over time. I mean, you Moscow, like 15 years ago, people would talk about Ukraine as a failed state. And yet, you know, despite the previous invasion, it manages to exist. Um, there's some the resilience there uh, is underestimated, I think, by a lot, a lot of people in Moscow. Um, plus, interestingly, uh, the Royal United Services Institute, a British think tank, um, was shown by the Ukrainians some Russian FSB polling that was done in Ukraine before the invasion that suggested low levels of support for the mm. president in the East and South, which could account for some of the optimism about how easy this would be. Right. I mean, it, it is rather shocking. And to your point about the, the Air Force, um, it is it is sort of shocking to see that there that today I mean I was reading this today from the the Pentagon briefing on this that uh, Ukraine still has a significant amount of its air of its air uh, uh, resources and still has control of the air uh, over over Ukraine which at this point in time you would think more than a week in that Russia would have complete control of the air over Ukraine and would have have, have wiped out the air defense systems and that simply hasn't happened. So uh, the airspace is tested. They clearly don't have complete control right. because right. there are Russian, um, both manned and unmanned aircrafts operating over the Ukrainian skies. And certainly a lot of cruise missiles are flying and other kinds of projectiles. But um, the fact, yeah, so I, it, it, you know, and it might be that the, that they're waiting for the Ukrainian uh, air force to get up in the air before taking it down. I, you know, but it is, it, this is, this is one of these strange I mean, it was an amount that is inexplicable from a sort of military perspective on us. So why Russia's not pursuing that more aggressively now, the they haven't actually had to do this before. Um, and it's harder than it seems. Right. Um, we learned that in Serbia, 
yeah. when you know like weeks and weeks of bombing and we couldn't there was still a serbian air defense system that was out there um so but that having said it, it doesn't seem like they're even really trying that hard it's, which is mysterious yeah I mean, and I guess the question is, and and, and I know you've, I've, you've, been saying, you've been talking about this on your Twitter feed, you wrote something about this um, for the Financial Times, you know, how how worried should we be about Putin being backed into a corner and doubling down on aggressive tactics? In other words, do we see this as, he doesn't seem to want to take any off ramps here. Um, and, you know, there's been all this talk about sort of potential for nuclear escalation. How worried are you about that? How worried do you think we should be about that? So um, there are two questions here. Uh, he's already escalated the violence of the war in Ukraine. Uh, and I expect that only to continue so long as the war continues. I mean, it's just going to get brutal. And um, the days to come are going to be really horrible, I think. Um, and uh, yeah. The, the second question is about a broader conflict between Russia and, you know, the West, the U.S., NATO, the rest of the world. Um, and the challenge is that over the medium term, it's hard for me to imagine right now what stability looks like. That is, what, what pathways we have to de-escalation of the broader conflict, which we should recognize, even though we don't want to get, you know, the Biden administration is very clear that it want to get involved militarily. From Russia's perspective, we are conducting economic warfare to destroy their economy. And by the way, they're not so far off the mark on that. Um, and, you know, like, don't expect them. I mean, I would be shocked if they didn't retaliate in some way. Uh, and that, you know, you could see that things escalating that way. Um, you know, if if there are if the intensity of, of uh, NATO allies su supply to the Ukrainian military continues, if the war drags on, um, you know, the, the pathways to escalation seem quite numerous, um, but the pathways to stability, like, I don't even know what that looks like at this point. So that that's what I, I am quite concerned about. That. Yeah. I mean, that was, you wrote about this and I, and that's the point that I've been th thinking a lot about what is the off ramp to war at this point? And, and the fact is, you know, Putin had a lot of off ramps to war before the war started. Um, I, I think, you know, Biden in the West certainly gave him an opportunity to walk away from this or certainly to 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 avoid going to war. Clearly, he wanted to go to war. I mean, I think we can now sort of say that with some level of certainty. Um, and there wasn't much. Really what? He wanted to go to war. I mean, do you just actually do you, just, do you just disagree with that? Do you think he I mean, was there any potential for a, um, a, a diplomatic solution before the war broke out? So, I mean, I think the, the short answer to that question is um, it, it is plausible that there wasn't, like that Putin was determined to go to war from when he made the decision to begin this buildup in October, November, or whenever it started. Uh, there, however, I don't think we fully tested the proposition by not putting the central issue for Russia on the table. Um, it is possible that even doing that might not have worked. And that is you know, the question about NATO enlargement, Ukraine's sort of geopolitical status and so on. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think we'll ever know now. Right, right. 
in terms of off ramps right now, what I worry about in the short term is like there are no off ramps if he decapitates the Ukrainian government. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for anyone, for us, for them, for, you know, I don't know, like how we go back from that. We will have to escalate. Uh, and, um, you know, with good reason, I guess. And, and you know, the, the, the challenge is like, so in the short term, I would I would hope that all efforts are being made to to use all this leverage generated in the form of the stranglehold we put on the Russian economy in the last week to stop him from you know, pursuing his war, to force a ceasefire, essentially. Um, but I, I, again, that it might not be possible. It might be that there is no, you know, he would he would not take any um, incentive to 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 stop. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, this is really tricky. And this is the problem from the beginning, which is that once the war started, our U.S. options get really are bad, all bad. I mean, Russia's, Russia's in deep trouble too. And you know, say nothing of how terrible the situation is for Ukraine, but like, we don't, there's no like magic wand that we can use to make this get better. There really isn't. I mean, I think that's a good point. There, there really, it's hard to see how you get out of this conflict. And, you know, I mean, I think also from the Ukrainian perspective, uh, they're, they're a player here as well, right? And they're gonna have certain demands and certain things that they're gonna require in order to agree to a ceasefire, agree to send any kind of long-term compromise. And I think that would, entail first and foremost no russian troops being stationed on ukrainian soil um and i'm not sure how that plays itself out um you know I, it, it is it is a it's what i think so concerned about this war is that it, it doesn't feel as though there's an obvious way to end it and that if putin's goal here is to uh wipe out the ukrainian leadership i mean let's just say for the record and i'm, I'm curious if you agree or disagree if he kills Zelensky, I don't think there's any coming back from that as far as Russia and its place in the national community for a very long time. I mean, that is a, a real red line that he, I think it seems intent on wind across, but the danger would be significant. Totally agree. Um, even just, you know, putting aside the moral, the, the political pressure to that that will generate would be overwhelming. I mean, and that's been one really striking thing. We're, we haven't even gotten there yet, right? And you know, we don't even need sanctions now because companies are sanctioning themselves. Yes, you know, um, because of the political uh, outcry, uh, outrage about the horror that is being that is unfolding. So um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, right. If uh, but the, the challenge is then we have like a russia sized both in the sense of its actual size and its uh, importance for the international system and its military capabilities to include the most nuclear warheads of any country on earth north korea right in terms of its pariah status and then you know like i don't understand how there's what the international system looks like after that i don't either <laughs> i don't either and it's really kind of terrifying to think about because i i think to your point i think it's a great point that that you know, the international outrage over this is happening on, on sort of two different planes. One is the government response to it, which is the sanctions, which is, you know, the support for Ukraine. But you're right, there's this, been this organic pro-Ukrainian uh, movement around the world. And I don't, if you, if, if and Zelensky's become a hero, and if the Russians kill Zelensky, I mean, is there any government in the world that could sit down and talk to Putin? That, I mean, I don't see how that's possible. I really don't. 
And I don't, and my question to you, I guess, is does Putin even recognize this? Does he, does he see the dangers inherent in, you know, killing Zelensky or ramping up these operations even further? Um, so I think the best way to think about, to understand his frame of mind is, is through the lens of uh, prospect theory, which I will not get into in the details, but just think about loss prevention, right? So um, when you're concerned that if you don't act, you will incur significant losses, your focus is on the costs of inaction and not the costs of action. Right. So I think his calculus was about, well, this situation is intolerable. Therefore, we must act. The consequences are, were not, I, I think, I mean, you know, obviously they factored in somehow, but they did not outweigh the costs of inaction. Um, and I think that is, you know, that only, you only get deeper into that sort of loss uh, prevention mindset the farther this conflict goes along. There's no sunk cost fallacy going on in Putin's head right now. Right. I mean, or, or maybe it is on God's house. I mean, right. I mean, basically, I think you're right. And what's interesting is that the whole war seems to have been predicated on the idea that, yes, doing fighting a war is bad, but doing nothing is worse. And so I'm going to fight this war. And I think once you make that decision, it's really hard to walk away from that position. It's really exactly. basically then you are acknowledging you've lost. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I freely admit that any diplomatic efforts now might be doomed no matter how much is put on the table. Because, you know, once you declare your objective to be the quote unquote denazification and demilitarization of a country, I mean, negotiating with its leaders, it just, you know, um, it, 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 it's, it sets, and, you know, and then, <laughs> like, and then there's this whole other category of what's going on inside of Russia right now, which is just extraordinary to watch. Um, but yeah. Well, let's talk about that a second, because I'm curious your view on that. I mean, how I know you saw last night, I, I saw your, you mentioned this on Twitter, uh, Lindsey Graham making some rather infelicitous comments about assassinating uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, which seems to be not helping the situation. How do you think, how, how significant a threat does Putin face at home? And I, and I don't mean just, you know, being, being shot or being, being ousted, but also from domestic opposition to the war which, as you said, seems to be growing. So um, this is like leaps and bounds, the, by leaps and bounds, the most risky thing he's ever done for his domestic stability. Um, and uh, in a very uncharacteristic way, he's put everything at risk and totally undermined the previous basis of his legitimacy, which was for most Russians that he had brought stability, economic and political stability to the country and uh, after the chaos of the 1990s and, you know, which was defined by currency devaluation, you know, like the kind of things that are happening now. Um, so in the short term, I, I don't see the pathways to either, you know, an elite driven type scenario or a popular uprising to overthrow the government. I mean, there's going to be a rally around the flag effect among for many Russians. Uh, I mean, I think the opposition, the widespread opposition among the elite is quite, I'm sure that, you know, he's aware of that. But 
I, I don't think that's enough to stop him. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I think that the, the, the challenges for domestic stability, economic and political are more medium to long-term ones, mm -hmm. particularly given that the economy is like in free fall. Right. I mean, how does that, that's the other question, too. I mean, the, the Russian economy is on the verge of cratering. I mean, we've seen the, a, a huge devaluation of the ruble. I mean, how, is there is you, do, does it make you at all concerned about all the sanctions the U.S. is putting on Russia? Or do you think this is the only appropriate response possible to what Russia is doing in Ukraine? So, Anybody who's got their mic on, if you just want to mute that format, that'd be great. I think we might have some little background noise going on there. Um, yeah, I think someone is not muted, but, um, the, the so, uh, there's no question that we had to respond, um, and that, you know, for many reasons, in, um, including that we threatened to do so, but what was striking about the response is that I think we went to like an 11 out of 10 in days as opposed to what the anticipation was was that we might not even get there at weeks right it's amazing isn't and, it? yeah i mean and and you know partly driven by the europeans who who i think surprised them even themselves by the uh, intensity of their own reaction which also has to do with the you know these are democracies and, and europeans are like understandably freaked out by what's going on so uh the problem is that they that they they, uh, they have since there are no conditions attached to uh, achieving sanctions relief, Russia, and the Russia's economy is going to be difficult to sustain under these circumstances. That it it creates escalatory pathways, right? First of all, Russia's stakes in the global economy have dramatically decreased. So yes. the, the consequences of hurting it are, are lower for Russia. Second, this has reinforced the, um, you know, paranoid view uh, that uh, among many in Moscow that we're out to overthrow their government and right. basically destroy their country, which right. I think it's sort of the same in Putin's mind for sure and in many of those around him. And under those circumstances, they're also more inclined to escalate. So, you know, there's a balance here um, between... Uh, the need to respond and the need to avoid um, escalating this into a, you know, a broader global conflict. Um, and, you know, I have to be like, it's not as though um, uh, I know what the secret formula was and uh, I could have, you know, but in other words, I, uh, I give credit to the administration for, for first of all, for pre-cooking a lot of these things and doing a lot of planning. Sure. But I also, you know, it's hard to be a, 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 a critic because of the, the pace of events and the need to respond and this sort of, in other words, I don't know that there was a right way of doing this differently necessarily. <laughs> um, but I, I do know that there are consequences of the way we did it. I appreciate that you say that because I think a lot, of, a lot of people, analysts are are unwilling to sort of acknowledge, they, they'll think, well, my way would have been the best way to go, but you're sort of, I think you're right. There wasn't really an alternative way to go in a lot of ways, because I don't know that the West response to this could have changed Putin's calculus. 
Um, but I think I, I, I just want to say anybody has any, any further. Well, the West and the lead up. To, I mean, do you disagree in the, in the lead up to the war in the, the month? I mean, I think maybe you disagree. You think that, that maybe there was a way to, to change Putin's mind or at least move him in the direction away from going to war. This outcome is such a catastrophe, right? Um, and so I wish no stone were left unturned before right. this happened. And again, it might not have worked. But um, I don't think we'll ever know. Yeah, yeah. And let me, and I just want to say to anybody, please, if you want to ask any questions, put anything in the chat, please, please, uh, you know, put your questions up there or raise your hand on the on the video. But you, you mentioned this point, we talked about it a, little, a second ago, but I find the, the, the this issue of public opinion to be sort of fascinating because you talk about the speed of the sanctions, right? I mean, Swift sanctions were put in place, I think that the, the White House announced them 72 hours after the war started. I don't think anybody expected it to happen that quickly. And I'm curious if you think, my sense of it is this being is being driven to a large extent by public opinion, right? The countries are, you point, they're democracies. They're responding to the outrage that their own public is feeling about the war. And, um, you know, is that your sense of it as well, that the speed of sanctions is really being driven by, in a sense, public opinion? Yes, and I think there is also emotion among the people who are actually making decisions in governments. Too. Yeah, true. Um, uh, there's outrage. There's you know, uh, you know, some desire to <laughs> pit back. There's uh, uh, this, you know, and I think, but th this like the Swift thing is interesting because, but, you know, there were signals before the conflict that basically we had kind of put that to the side, not because it was so escalatory, but because it, you know, it had, there were, it would create complications right. for right. Um, European companies and wasn't as effective as the sanctions on the state banks themselves. And then like suddenly the Europeans were ready to roll and, you know, the U S was going to, to the, one of the positive aspects of the uh, Biden, the, that they deserve a lot of credit for is the coordination with the EU on this, but, and they wanted the same page. So, but I was, I was amazed that the central bank sanctions happened on that on last, was it last weekend? Like, it seemed like yeah, last, it was last Saturday. Yeah. Six days um, ago. Because that, re that really is the 11 part out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Really? Yeah. That's because basically it makes it so the Russians cannot get access to the reserve they built up over the last several years in preparation for the war, correct? Yeah, I mean, not only in preparation for the war, but yes, uh, not all of them. And it's, it, you know, the, the details of this are incredibly complicated and um, you really should get a sanctions expert to tell you. But from what I understand, you know, not all of the CBR reserves are held outside of uh, Russia and not all of them are held in places that impose sanctions on them and not all of the sanctions are freezes or seizures but they're just, you know, they can't do transactions. So it's, it's complicated, but yes, it has limited this, the, the central bank's ability to deal with the broader economic crisis that has, you know, Overtaken. befallen them. Right. So I got a question here from Mary Sweeney. She wants to, wants me to know, ask you about China's relationship with Russia um, and what leverage they could possibly apply in a situation either for, you know, for better or for worse. So uh, I think China is going to be disinclined to be seen as publicly pressuring Russia, but um, I would not be, I would not exclude the possibility that Xi might 
try to be a moderating influence, but it's certainly not at like the United States insistence given the state of the US-China relationship. Right. And in a way, you know, there are benefits for China from this I and mean, the global economic consequences are negative, but Russia will be far more dependent on China. The US will be far more uh, preoccupied with Europe than it will be with the Asia Pacific in the short to medium term, in the long term now. Um, you know, our entire like plan to refocus all of the resources of the Department of Defense on China is like on pause. Not working out um, so well. So, what? Not working out so well, is it? Well, right. Um, you know, like uh, adversaries get a say, right? That's the. Uh, it's not all about our strategy. Um, so uh, I don't know. Um, I would be pleasantly surprised if if uh, the Chinese are able to be the sort of country that is, is able to talk Putin out of this. Um, you think but they, I don't they think have that kind of influence? Do you think to do that? I think Xi has a has a relationship with Putin that is like where he could get him on the phone. Um, and but they, it's not the kind of thing like you know they don't. Uh, one of the sort of ways and the one of the reasons why the Russia-China relationship is that they don't mess with each other's sort of core regional uh, preoccupations. They stay out of each other's problems. Um, and, you know, they don't get on the other side of those problems. You know, they don't stick, you know, they don't take the U.S. side against the other. Um, and I just I don't see that changing now. But I'm not a China expert too, so people might want to ask one. Right, them. right. No, no. I, of course, of course. I mean, I and I guess that, and I know you've got to go, students. All that's sort of maybe fault. Maybe you can you can sort of close up a little bit here. But does this? This is a question about. Look, we talked we talked about um, the U.S. being involved, the U.S. pivoting to Asia since the Obama administration, right? This has been. I mean, I, this has been a big focus of U.S. foreign policy for a while, and we keep getting distracted. And actually, I, I can go back to the Bush administration. Keep getting pushed and in, in, in being pulled in, in other directions, pulled in the Middle East, now pulled into Europe. Does this, do you think, change the U.S. relationship with Europe in a very fundamental way in the sense that Europe becomes the preoccupation of U.S. foreign policy, at least, you know, going forward, and it gives it makes it much harder for us to focus on Asia? Certainly in the short term. I think the question is about the long term and whether uh, the were, you know, it's, I mean, it's obviously, it's not a binary choice, um, but uh, in the short term, there's gonna be a lot of redirection of resources, I would imagine. Uh, over the long term, you know, China still represents a more systemic right. challenge. So, you know, short answer is, I guess, we'll see. Okay, and I mean- Surely Right. And I mean, the thing is also, it, it seems to me that, you know, I've always made this point for years that like that NATO has basically contained Putin's aggressions. Right. And it, it doesn't mean that Ukraine wouldn't come under attack as not a member of NATO. I mean, is that still do you still I guess, how confident do you feel? It's hard to feel confident of anything coming out of, of Russia. But how confident do you feel now that NATO does re represent a, an effective counterweight to Putin? Or do you think that you're going to see increased potential tensions or even conflict between the U.S. between the Russia and NATO country, or is Putin not that crazy? I guess is maybe the better way to put the question. So it's 
I would, I don't think that Putin wants to get into a war with NATO, particularly, generally speaking, and particularly not now, uh, because he thinks the Russians think they'll lose. Um, they, they, I think they went to war in Ukraine thinking that they win and they probably will in the end, but, uh, you know, I worry more about, um, either a sort of tit for tat spiral where we're deliberately doing non-kinetic things to each other that eventually gets us up to the kinetic level or an inadvertent escalation because Russia is conducting a major military operation in a country that shares the land border with four U.S. allies. Right. Um, and, you know, that just raises risks beyond where they normally are. I mean, can you can you reassure all the listeners here that that there's not going to be a nuclear war with Russia? Because I feel like the, the notion is just incredibly far-fetched. But I got to be honest with you, I'm, and I'm, I wrote a whole book about about threat inflation and how the, the problems of threat inflation. But I have to be honest with you, like I look at what Putin's behavior and how irrational it does seem in many respects and how um, almost disillusional in a lot of ways this, this war has been, that I do worry about the extent to which he would try to escalate things. I mean, is that concern just, is? I mean, it feels minuscule, but I mean, how concerned are you about that, that potential for a, a nuclear escalation, I guess? He doesn't need nuclear weapons to uh, defeat Ukraine. Um, what, where I worry about nuclear escalation is in the context of a Russia-NATO conflict. Um, and ironically, or not ironically, but you know, the, the thing to keep in mind is that having degraded a fair amount of their conventional capabilities fighting this war, they're going to have fewer steps on the escalation ladder between, you know, uh, before they get to tactical nuclear weapon use. So, I, I, you know, I don't worry about like hun hundreds of missiles raining down on, on, on American cities in the short term. Um, and I don't worry about Russia or NATO deliberately starting a war with one another. But like we're at the phase where a lot of things that, that are that were extremely low probability, you know, are not like higher probability, but the risks attendant there are, are, you know, greater than they were before. Right, right. Of course, obviously, considering the, the consequences of that, we have to take those risks seriously. Um, you know, and, and I, I'd like to be able to find a way to end this conversation in a positive way, but I fear that's not going to happen. Oh, okay, I'll give you a positive piece of news. Oh, thank you, please. Okay, I'm not <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the, the, the Biden administration uh, reportedly has been prepared from the day this began to have a deconfliction mechanism with Russia, which they, on the Syria uh, model. Deconfliction, de you said? Deconfliction? Yes. So hmm. uh, I'll explain what that means, basically, to ensure that um, uh, often this has to do with air operations, but uh, sometimes ground too, that, that uh, when you know, US and Russian um, aircraft are operating in nearby airspace, that they are aware of that and don't deliberately, you know, don't inadvertently get into uh, a situation where they're you know, surprised or uh, miscalculate or misunderstand what's going on. And so that, that um, worked relatively well in Syria 
Mm -hmm. And they were the Biden administration was prepared to roll that out immediately when the hostilities began because the U.S. would be bringing forces to Poland and other NATO allies on Russia's periphery, which could be misinterpreted. But no one was picking up the phone on the Russian side until yesterday. That's good. That is good. And so that mechanism apparently now is getting up and running. So and I did see I think it was yesterday, the day before that that Secretary of Defense Austin uh, canceled a, a missile test for fear of. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Struck me as a very smart approach thing to do. And in general, yeah, I think that the Biden administration is signaling in any number of different ways that they are not going to militarily directly intervene in this. The problem is that Russia thinks we're already intervening. And we kind of are, you know, like um, we're arming a military that's killing Russians. Um, now, they're perfectly justified in doing that because the <laughs> Russians invaded. But like just from the Russian perspective, we should keep that in mind that it's not like, you know, we're n- not involved in this at all. Right. And, and you know, Ron Irving asked a question about the wheat market and food shortages. I mean, we are declaring economic war against Russia. I mean, there's just no other way around it. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying it's wrong. I mean, I think we should be doing this considering what Russia is doing in Ukraine. But we are you know, we are declaring it is a form of economic conflict, if you will, with Russia that's going to have severe consequences of the Russian people. Um, You know, if you have this kind of blinkered worldview that Putin and Russian elites seem to have, I can see how that's seen as a as an aggressive move. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no way around it, unfortunately. Well, listen, I don't want to keep I know you got a lot of stuff going on. I really appreciate you taking that. I'm going to stick around for those of you and still on the call. We'll talk for a few minutes longer. Uh, about some other issues we couldn't address here. But but Sam, thank you for taking the time. This was really informative, really helpful. And from all of us, I just appreciate appreciate uh, your uh, speaking to us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Um, for the rest of you still on the call, I, you know, obviously, if you have any other questions, things you want to raise, please uh, enter in the chat or if you want to you raise your hand in the video. The one thing I did want to mention we didn't talk about, because I knew what Sam was going to say, was on this issue of the no-fly zone. I'm sure that you've seen, there's been a great deal of talk about no-fly zones um, mainly, I think, by the Ukrainians who've been bringing up the issue, understandably so, as well as some uh, Western leaders have mentioned it as well. I, this is a terrible idea, and it's not going to happen. Uh, I, I, a terrible idea because it would basically be a declaration of war against Russia. There's no other way to put it. If you are saying that Russian aircraft flying over Ukraine will be shot down by NATO or, or U.S. Uh, um, uh, um, planes or you know missiles or what have you, um, that's a declaration of war. Um, and that has the potential to escalate into a um, a greater conflict, potentially nuclear war. And, you know, we spent um, 70 years avoiding getting into a war with Russia because we didn't want to um, get into a nuclear war with Russia. So this is um, the Soviet Union, obviously, and then Russia. Um, so that's why that's not going to happen. And I, I think, you know, I understand where these calls are coming from. Um, but it's a bad idea and it's not going to happen. And I think, you know, just to keep in mind, Joe Biden did say he wasn't going to send U.S. troops to Ukraine. That didn't mean just U.S. boots on the ground. It also meant uh, in the air as well. So I wouldn't expect it to happen. Um, and I, I'm curious, again, people have more comments or anything they want to ask about. I, I do think it was hard. Um, it's hard to write about this a little bit right now because it is really hard to come up with sort of a... Um, a positive trajectory to this conflict. Um, I think Sam's point is unfortunately spot on that you're going to see a lot more bloodletting in Ukraine. I don't see any way around that. Um, you you know, the initial, for whatever reason, the Russians were did not aggressively um, 
uh, attack Ukrainian forces. They are now. Um, if you were to believe even the numbers coming out of Russia, they're taking huge losses. Um, we had a, a number I saw of um, 450, that was a few days ago, uh, deaths, which was the Russian number. That was the Russian, um, that was their information uh, uh, ministry saying, putting those numbers out there. Um, so I'd expect the number to actually, the real number is probably higher. Uh, but 450 is a huge amount of troops being lost in a short period of time. That's that's um, significantly more than we lost the entire Gulf War. And I would imagine more than we lost um, in the run-up in the um, the first week or two of the um, the Iraq War. And part of the reason for that is um, that the Russians um, don't seem to take the lives of their troops very seriously or, or, or don't place a lot of importance on protecting the lives of their own um, soldiers. And you've seen that throughout Russian history, um, Soviet Soviet Union during during the World, World War II, um, in Afghanistan, um, in Chechnya, it, it is a certain pattern of behavior and how the Russians fight um, fight wars. And um, you also, and I mentioned this in the in the newsletter a few days ago. There's also a question: a lot of the soldiers are conscripts, um, poorly trained, um, you know, and uh, without a great without without what appears much in the way of morale. Um, and desire to fight their their Slavic brethren in Ukraine, and I think um, you know all of that is contributing to a war that is 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 um, you know becoming more 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 bloody and more more uh, intense. And I think also to the last point that as the Russians, the worse they're doing on the ground, I think the more inclined they are to to ramp up operations in order to defeat the Ukrainians. Um, and you're seeing that in Kharkiv. You saw really horrible pictures of the shelling that's going on there. I worry a lot about Kiev. I was talking to an, um, uh, another Russian expert the day who sort of was questioning whether or not, you know, Kiev is seen as sort of the birthplace of, of Russia, Russian nationalism. It's 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 incredibly important place in um, the, the history of Russia. And would Putin really want to raise Kiev to the ground? And and I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I'm getting increasingly fearful that he's willing to consider a lot of moves that I wouldn't have imagined possible um, a week ago. Um, or two weeks ago. So I, I think, um, you know, I try to be positive. <laughs> I try to look on the bright side of things, but I don't see a lot of room for for a lot of room to be positive in what's happening right now. I think it's going to get worse. And I do worry about, as Sam pointed out, and I think he's spot on in this comment, that it's hard to see what, you know, stability looks like, right? I don't know that even if Russia were to come up with some compromise where they pull their troops out and you know, NATO's off the table and Ukraine adopts policy neutrality. Do we go back to a situation where Russia is considered a member of the international community? I kind of don't think so. Um, I, I do think that Putin has become a pariah and I don't know that you can reverse that. And I worry, as I said in the call, I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't emphasize this point enough. If they kill Zelensky, who has become such a heroic figure around the world for what he's done, um, I don't know how Russia ever walks, comes back from that. And I'll just, this is sort of, Random take for whatever it's worth. Uh, as I mentioned in my some news, I was in I was in uh, Memphis um, last week, and I was struck by on more than one occasion people actually just came up to us, talked to I was with a friend of mine, talked to us about the situation in Russia and sort of say how much they admired Zelensky. I, I think he has become a, an almost mythic figure over the past week, um, and a Churchillian figure. And um, I, I mean, I just. You know, if something ha terrible happens to him, I, I don't. I, I think if A it would be obviously 
horrible for a Democratic elected president to be murdered uh, by Russia. But I think it would be horrible for Russia. And I don't think that Russia can walk itself back from that. Um, I'm going to finish up in a few minutes, unless we have some other questions. Anybody else wants to um, wants things people want to ask about? Um, Ron, I appreciate your question. Also, um, Mary, for your question about, about China. Um, <laughs> Ron Irving asked me about John Morant, which is sort of funny. Um, I'll just mention, this is a bit of a digression, but um, those of you who follow basketball, John Morant had maybe the greatest dunk um, in the history of the NBA, or certainly one of the greatest dunks. And I was there. I was in the 10th row and saw it live, and it was one of the more amazing things I've ever seen in my life. And he scored 52 points, and it was incredible, and one of the greatest things I've ever done. So thanks for bringing that up, Ron. It was awesome. Um, and then someone asked, just a quick question. We'll, we'll, we'll make it a little lighter here. Re recommendations to see live music in Memphis. Um, I'll just say, for those of you interested, uh, I went to the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, which was amazing. Went to a bunch of honky-tonks in Nashville, which were really great. Got to hear a lot of interesting country music. Um, and in Memphis, on Beale Street, they have lots of uh, great blues clubs and saw a lot of great a lot of great blues musicians uh, the couple nights that we were there. Did go to the Grand Ole Opry, uh, which was a really enjoyable experience, one I, I recommend to everybody. Um, great music there. Um, you know, the thing about those places, Memphis and Nashville, they have very different music scenes. Nashville is country, Memphis is the blues, um, some jazz, but really kind of blues and, and, and soul and rock. Um, we went to the Stax Museum, to the um, African American Museum in Nashville, African American Museum of Music History. Just amazing. Uh, if you're a music fan, uh, it's a trip you should consider taking. Both places are extraordinary. And I'll just say I learned a ton. I learned a ton being uh, at the Stax Museum also, learned a ton there. Learned a ton at the Country Music Museum. It's an awesome place to visit. And the food is great. Although, if you have high cholesterol, you might want to, you know, think about whether you want to go. <laughs> because it's not the healthiest food environment I've ever been in. Uh, I ate more pork in a week than I've eaten in my life. My grandfather somewhere is rolling over uh, in his grave over that one. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was an interesting experience to, to say to be there. Um, but listen, thank you everyone for, um, and I saw Doug Vanna just joined. I'm sorry, we're about to jump off actually, but I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Doug, you had a piece actually, I think uh, um, about uh, talking about off-ramps. I think you would have enjoyed the conversation because we talked a lot today about the need for off-ramps um, for Russia, which the problem is, and I think this is the issue again, we'll come, I'll come back to and we'll sum, up, sum it up here. It's just hard to see where those off-ramps are for Russia and for the, and for Ukraine and for the West. And one thing I want, to, point I want to make that that Sam didn't mention, I think it's worth bringing out here, is that you know Ukraine resisted in a lot of ways um, giving in to Russian demands before the war started for reasons I think I'll have to do with politics, right? I think for Zelensky to give in to Russia before any any shots were fired, I think would have been difficult to him to do domestically. I think it would have had a there would have been a political backlash to doing so. And I think that um, so now, of course, that that things have happened the way they, they, they've they happened. Ukraine has the world on its side. You know, there is a question of what, what's the off-ramp for Ukraine? It isn't just a question of getting Russia to agree to off-ramps. It's a question of Ukraine too. Um, and I think, you know, Ukraine is going to demand that Russian troops leave the country. And I don't see, I don't see how that happens. I don't see how Putin goes to all the trouble he's gone to, to simply leave. And I thought initially one possibility was, you know, he would come in, he would, uh, you know, do some damage to the Ukrainian military, um, and then maybe he could leave. At least he, he, he taught them a lesson. He, he, he made a point. It does seem now as though he wants to occupy the country. Um, and I don't know how you find a middle ground between that position and the Ukrainians' desire not to have Russian troops on their soil. And one thing Putin has done that is so damaging to this whole situation is he has basically, you know, uh, 
ramped up Ukrainian patriotism and nationalism to the point where, you know, I don't know how you put that genie back in the bottle. I just, I don't think you can do it. And so I, I, I am worried about that. And I think, and I think, unfortunately, the Ukrainians are going to pay a major price for this on the ground. And I just, you know, I want to see the West try to keep the door open for diplomacy, uh, the Europeans to do that, um, you know, even to, to, to sort of make clear that sanctions can be lifted if, if Russia takes certain steps. I just don't think it's going to work. I just don't. I don't think there's any trust between, between Putin and the West. I don't think he trusts the West, whatever they say or do. And I think that he has, you know, I think he has decided this is the post he wants to take and nothing is to dissuade him from it. And there doesn't seem to be anybody around him willing to dissuade him from this court. And that's the other thing that's scary too. And this is, by the way, the problem is just the record of having a personality driven dictatorship in that you, you shut yourself off from contrary information. And it does seem as though for Putin, if there's someone around him who is saying, this is a bad idea, Vlad, you shouldn't be doing this, I, I, I doubt it. I don't see much evidence of that. I mean, I saw Sergey Lavrov on TV yesterday, and I know, look, I know he has to say these things in public, but basically saying, you know, we're not attacking in Ukraine. This isn't us. We're not doing this. It's the Ukrainians bombing themselves. I mean, it's Orwellian. So anyway, I'm sorry to end on such a negative note. I hope that, you know, hopefully Ukrainian resistance will, um, uh, will, continue and hopefully we can find some way to some kind of stalemate on the ground or some kind of ceasefire. But um, it's hard to be optimistic right now. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you all, a lot of direct messages, people. Thank you for joining as always. It's such a pleasure. I'm gonna send this one out actually to everybody on the list because I want everyone to hear what Sam has to say. It's such a fascinating conversation. Um, thank you as always for coming. Thank you for your support for Truth and Consequences. Um, have a great weekend and I will see you um, next week. Thanks a lot guys, bye-bye.